Welcome to a special edition of Chewing the Fat, a special Saturday edition of uh, Chewing the Fat. Make sure you uh, subscribe to Chewing the Fat, download, and rate and review, please. Uh, I'd be very thankful for you to do that. You can follow me on social media, too, at JeffyJFR on Twitter, Jeff Fisher Radio on Facebook and Instagram. So it's been 50 years, 50 years this week that uh, the Charles Manson murders took place. Amazing. Uh, one of the most, uh, you know, huge story here in the United States. And I had an opportunity to talk to Diane Lake, who was part of the Manson family. And uh, she wrote a book that was entitled My Story of Charles Manson, Life Inside His Cult and the Darkness That Ended the 60s. And she's had a fascinating life between uh, becoming part of Charles's family to getting away from it and yet keeping it hidden and then bringing it back to the forefront again. And so I wanted you to give a listen to Diane Lake on this anniversary of the horrific, evil madman, Charlie, Charles Manson. One of the most um, iconic criminals in America is a guy by the name of Charles Manson. And the people that surrounded him uh, and, you know, were convicted of murder, the Manson murders, uh, for being Charlie's girls. But there were also other people around him in his, uh, in his, I'll say cult, but they will, they would say we're not a cult. We're just, uh, you know, family, right? And Diane Lake is one of those people who were one of Charlie's girls, uh, part of his family. And she has a book called Member of the Family, My Story of Charles Manson, Life Inside His Cult. So, uh, you know, you can get away with calling it a cult. I don't know that at the time anyone ever considered it a cult. Um, Diane. Look, I know, you know, the book covers your whole life and, and, you know, you start out with your childhood that, uh, you know, everybody's childhood had some scarring, but it appeared that your childhood played a pretty big role as leading you into becoming, you know, one of Charlie's girls. Is, is that the right impression I'm getting? I think so. Yes. I, I don't think that um, with a different lifestyle, I would have had an opportunity to meet him. You never know. Right. I mean, you know, teenagers can be, you know, I know. I understand. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. And, be, and go off on their own and, and actually, you know, um, yeah. So, so let, let's talk a little bit. But you, you were part of, you know, the, you were part of the, the, uh, you know, now this, uh, and I hate to use the word iconic, but it really is just a, you know, this United States, criminal family of Charles Manson and he's such this you know this evil bad guy in our minds but he wasn't that way uh, always and let's talk a little bit about when you first started uh, you know when you first met him and became part of you know the family he was a musician he you know played the guitar and he wrote all these songs in prison and he came out and found himself in the middle of the, you know, 
67, the, right. which became the summer of love. He got out like in the spring of 67. And, you know, he was prepared to be a pimp. <laughs> that's, <laughs> right. that, that's, you know, a, a musician playing, you know, a music playing pimp. Kind right. Of but, you know, he, he found uh, free love and, you know, the hippie scene, long hair. People were just breaking all the rules, you know, of, you know, the what was considered the normal society. And he just and he had this uncanny ability to become any number of people to so that he would fit in, whether it was for survival, manipulation or just providing what we needed or what people that he met needed. He could do that. He just had this uh, uncanny ability to become any number of different people. And so he just morphed into, you know, a long-haired hippie guru kind of guy. Right. You know, singing his music and, you know, smoking pot and taking some LSD and, you know, gathering us broken-winged girls along the way. And when the when you broken-winged girls would uh, would come in, um, how did that how did how did that how did that work? How did it bring into you where you finally were like, oh, I'm okay with with everyone else here too because we're all Charlie's girls. You know, what I mean, we're all part of that. Well, we really. Um, Maybe because of his philosophy, maybe because of the counterculture, we we weren't really in competition with each other. It was, you know, kind of like an open sisterhood. Okay. So we we were all like sisters to one another, and because of you know get rid of your inhibitions and all that, sure. we kind of shirked off any feelings that we had that this was wrong, that we shouldn't be sharing lover, you know, lovers. Right, right, right. All of that, you know, kind of uh, was ingrained in us that it, it this was a new way of living. And it was, it was okay. You were already saying goodbye to the what was considered normal anyway. So exactly. the rest of it just so added it really on didn't that. Seem that. It didn't seem that um, wrong or strange. And... He was very playful, very impish. He, he just—he just was. He was very playful, and um, and fun. At least that's how I remember right, him right. in the beginning. So, how long before you and uh, you know really started to realize, hey, something's up, or I don't feel right, and uh, you know this just isn't quite right, or did it take until? the end until you know until it was falling apart no it was probably about a uh maybe a little bit over a year or maybe uh yeah uh, it was about a year later when i realized that oh the whole kind of demeanor of for sure him but the whole construct of the family was kind of changing and i had disobeyed him as I was supposed to stay up in the desert, we started, you know, really when it all started to go kind of crazy was when we were introduced to the ranches up in Death Valley. And, you know, he saw this as a very secluded place and his idea of this race war and our, you know, he, he just started getting delusioned about 
him being a messiah of some variety, whether it was the second coming of Christ or whatever, although he did experience a crucifixion on LSD, which he did reenact at times on acid trip for uh, new members or, you know, a, a gathering of people. Amazing. On acid. So you're so, out you're out in the yeah. desert. You're out in the he desert just, with the ranches. Okay. Right. And uh but he was trying to um get us like move from Spawn Ranch to the desert with supplies, with gasoline, with food, with you know, everything that we would need to hunker down. Plus a lot of money during this during this race war. And and his last you know, the the Dennis Wilson rock star thing didn't work out. Uh, I think primarily because Charlie really did not want to be changed. He didn't want to change his clothes. He didn't want to redo his hairstyle. You know, he didn't want to change the words to his music Interesting. kind of thing. And right. so they, so, you know, they got in some arguments and, and Dennis's brothers thought, you know, he was, you know, off his rocker. And so <laughs> So it's interesting that uh So that so, didn't that didn't work out, but he was still hoping, you know, they were still dangling a carrot that maybe, you know, they could give him a recording contract somewhere or make an album. And that's we, where Terry Melcher came in. But we still and had so, people on the outside looking looking in thinking that he was that he was uh you know off his rocker, like as you said. Right. So that had to, you know, maybe play some kind of role for some of the people on the inside if they were, you know, really witnessing some of that. That's it's, it's interesting. Well, right. he just became much more focused on earning money any which way. The oh, whole yeah, family it. was kind of, you know, we, we started up a, uh, a nightclub in the saloon. That didn't last long. Police didn't appreciate, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, a pop-up uh, uh, nightclub and you know I, I think Tex and one of the other girls made up of some kind of brew of belladonna you know Tex That's came great. on the scene he's doing you know he's obviously involved in drug deals which we never had been involved in before and things just started to go wrong but it was all I think in this push to earn enough money to get supplies yeah, yeah, he needed money. to go to the to hunker down in the desert. Yeah, it's expensive. So right. that's when that's when things changed. You know, the straight Satans got involved with guns and knives and and you know the the Bernard Crow thing, the Black Panther, and then the White Album. Okay, then the White Album came up, and Charlie was sure that they were sending him a subliminal message. You know, but right. and so that's when the black this black white race war that he'd been talking about forever now became helter skelter. You know, and right. and the piggies and the blackbird and all of that all started to take on significance. He played it backwards. He played it forwards. He played it slow. He played it fast. You know, and it, it just he he kind of went off there. You know, he <laughs> he. It, it, that's when the whole thing changed. It, it kind of it kind of changed, and I disobeyed him. I was supposed to stay in the desert, and I didn't. And I came back right into the middle of all that. And so then he tried to, you know, pa- 
pack me off back to my parents. But, you know, I was like too far gone in all the Charlieisms and the talks and the songs and all of that, that I just felt like a crazy person. And so I found my way back and then he took me to Gary Hinman's and then, you know, I didn't like being with him. I mean, he was a very sweet man, but I, you know, so he took me back to Spawn Ranch. I think uh, Lynette was still there with George, but, you know, there was another commune that had moved in in the back house and these little outlaw shacks along the road. And so, you know, I ended up with them and taking a bad acid trip. And so anyway, I ended up back with, you know, with the family. And I just, you know, at that point, I didn't know where to go. So I just, you know, I hung in there, low profile, took care of the kids, you know, right. the little the babies and, and whatnot. And I just, you know, uh, I just l- took on a low profile. So when the, uh, when the murders happened. And, you know, all of that started, uh, you know, coming down and falling apart. You did not have anything to do with that, correct? Correct. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm I, sure. I didn't. I, I was there. I was there at the back house at Spawn Ranch. And I was there the, the morning that Leslie came back. And I was woken up by her burning stuff in the fireplace that smelled awful. There was like a purse and a rope and had a bag of money and then somebody you know in a car came down the road she says ah, don't let them see me those are the people that gave me a ride you know from Griffith Park wow. and so I went to the door and you know had a conversation and no I you know I don't know who you're talking about and and um, and they left and then it was I think that afternoon that I got whisked off to Olancha which is like the gateway to Death Valley and it was often a meeting place for us so it wasn't unusual, and that's when Tex told me, you know, he hey, got you a newspaper go, right. and slapped it and said, I did this. Charlie told me to. And then I was like, oh, my gosh. And I had actually just gotten back from being arrested for, you know, being a runaway or, I mean, vagrancy, whatever. I don't know what they were going to try to charge me with, but I didn't have any ID, and they felt I was underage, which I was. And, you know, I, I gave them a fake ID from, I mean, not an actual physical fake ID, but, a, you know, an alias that right. I've been arrested with in Ventura County. And so they let me go. And that, that officer took me home to his house. You know, wow. I took a shower. I slept on their couch. They gave me food, a hat, gave me money. And he took me back to where he picked me up the next day and gave me five bucks. That's incredible. Which, you know, back... Back in 69, that was a lot of money. Yeah, that's incredible. So we're we're talking to Diane Lake. It's when I got back. That's when Tex told me. Right. Like, where has it What happened? What's going on? Right. Um, If I'd known, I would not have come back. (laughs) Well, I mean, it was kind of a sign for you not to come back, right? With the the officer and his family being so nice to you and... uh, you know, trying to help you out, and you just, you know, you just were oblivious to the signs. Right, right. Well, and I didn't know. I mean, it was when I got, when he dropped me back off on the road, and I went back to where we were camped out. That's when Tex told me what he had done. And so then what? I mean, where where are you at now? I mean, Tex tells you, hey, this is what we did. Uh, Charlie told me to do this. I'm scared to death to leave 
It's like, oh my gosh, if they could do that, you know, they're going to kill me. And and I, you know, I don't remember exactly what, you know, Tex said, because I was kind of like really blown away. But, you know, whether he threatened me not to leave again. Um, right. Anyway, so I ended up going up to the desert. And then once you're in the desert, I mean, you're way, way far away from any civilization. Right. And so I was, I was really kind of stuck. And we went through all kinds of, you know, survival missions and, you know, walking in the hot desert. And every day we'd, we'd camp out under these uh, sand-colored parachutes. And then at night wow. we would walk back to the ranch and do the cooking and bathing or whatever. And then at dawn we'd go back. back out. And so I really, and the two of the gals did escape. And, you know, Charlie had us all, you know, uh, shake in the bushes for them. And I, I really felt in my heart, oh my gosh, if, if they had found these girls, they would have been killed. Right. And so. But they I, didn't. They, no, they escaped. Yeah. It's amazing, you know, that they were able to negotiate in the dark down Gorewash and then, you know, the Ballarat. And then from Ballarat, I think the closest town is Trona. <laughs> Uh, I mean, how many times have I gone down Guller Gulch, though? I mean, it's, uh, I'm with you, Diane. I, I know that Guller Gulch, man. It's been tough enough during the day, let alone at night. Oh, uh, you've been there? You've been <laughs> no, down Guller no, Gulch? I'm just, no, I'm just joking. I want to say yes, I have, but I haven't. I was just joking. Yeah. Oh, no. It's, <laughs> it's just extremely, I believe you that. know, remote and, sna- you know, snakes and, uh, anyway. I, I so, got it. Um, so, all right, so, so I managed to escape the first raid, but I got caught in the second raid gotcha, with Charlie okay. and, you know, was in jail with the rest of the girls. They put us all in the same cell and the guys all in the, in the same cell. And But uh, Susan had a warrant out for her arrest, which sent her to L.A. Women's Jail. And then she started, she, <sighs> she had to have really believed the whole thing because she right. started telling her cellmates, you know, about Helter Skelter and her participation in starting it, you know, with these mer- I mean, She believed it, yeah. You know, she had to have. Yeah. She absolutely, you know, I mean, I guess during this war, the prison doors were going to f- just fall off and, and you know, she would, they were going to escape to Death Valley. So wow. then they brought us to the grand jury, and it wasn't until then. I think that that grand jury, you know, we were arrested in October, and that took place, I believe, in December, like early December. And that was the first time that I had felt safe enough and sane enough to say to the bailiff, you know, before I went into the right. grand jury, that what my real name was. I'm Diane Lake. I'm 16, and I want my mommy. Uh, I you bet. Know? So yeah. Like, oh, I want out of this, you know. I'm in a mess. Help. Right. Kind of thing. So. Right. So um, that, did that was the beginning of my telling the truth. Did once that happened, um, and you know, obviously you helped, and you know, we we know, you know, the outcome of of the you know Charlie and Charles and you know the girls, but let's let's talk a little bit about what happened with you then. You were did were your parents. Uh, you know, welcoming. Well, I was underage. Were they welcoming? Were they ready to help, or were was that another struggle in itself? They were. My parents had separated. My mom had like remarried, 
and um, had a baby, and I had no idea where they were. So they made me a ward of the court, and they committed me to Patton State Hospital for 90 okay. days, which then became like eight months. But that probably really saved my life. I mean, not only was I safe, <laughs> right. but I learned how to play the flute. I, you know, I, I, I went to school. The nurses were my moms. I learned how to crochet. You know, I saw lots of uh, mental illness. I saw uh, bulimia. And, you know, we were throwing up our food because we didn't want to get fat. And I, you know, I saw this woman that was just a bag of bones. And so it was like, oh, so I stopped throwing up my food. And, you you. know, there were other people with alcoholism, you know, that were repeat customers. I saw a lot of illness. I saw a lot of mental illness that I then, I think, really helped me avoid that. And then to... At the end, my arresting officer in Inyo County took me in as a foster child, oh, that's which really gave me back my self-worth, and he helped yeah. me get through the trial. So, um, was that, that now? Was that the same I, guy that had helped you before? No. Okay. No. Same same sheriff's department, but a different a different guy. Right. I mean, that, that's that's great, right? I mean, you you, you touched uh, you touched a couple of people's hearts, and they were willing to help you. That's that's fantastic. So you had uh, you went uh, you went forty seven years, according to this book, without uh, without talking about it really. And uh, you know, Diane Lake, uh, member of the family, story of Charles Manson, life inside his cult, and the darkness that ended the sixties. Um, what? turned you around and said, you know what, I want to tell my story and tell a little bit about what was going on in, uh, in the Manson head, in the Manson family. Well, it had kind of been in the back of my mind, you know, for a few years, but my husband of 35 years died and I uh-huh. was trying to refine my, you know, find a, who I am now. And um, as a Christian, I really wanted to give glory to God. And this was the one thing that I had to do that, because it's only by the grace of God that I came through that relatively unscathed. <laughs> right. You know, really not traumatized. Um, and put back together and, and led a really incredible life, you know, since then. So, and I just put it behind me. Um, actually, uh, the man I'm married to now, cause then I, I got remarried, but, um, he, we had been friends and, and fallen in love and gone to Europe back in 73 to 75. And okay. I wrote letters to my mom, which she saved. And in rereading them, I never mention or refer to the Manson family. Oh, wow. My involvement, I, I, you know, and this is to my mom, and this is like 20, 10-paged letters. And so I never, I really, I really tucked it away. No I kidding. really didn't, you know, and it wasn't until, you know, Paul Dosti and his cadaver dog, Buster, called me like in 2008, 2009 to say, um, we're going to 
my dog alerted to human remains in Death Valley, and I've got permission to dig, and if we find bodies, you're going to be in the middle of it again. Wow. So Why would that be? Well, because what he said was that it was the fact that apparently I had told Jack Gardner um, that there were bodies buried there. I don't remember telling Jack Gardner. I don't remember there being bodies there. But what I probably said was that when they asked me, do I think there's, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. right, 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 right. I probably said, well, there could be. There could be, sure, because there were many, many people uh, purported met family members, but also old miners and you know drifters through the desert that came and went. And I don't know where they came from or where they went. So right. they were just there know, one and, day and gone the next. Right. So uh, you know, I think anyway. So I had to tell my kids. So that was the first kind of break, and then. Wow. Of, of telling the truth. And then my husband died. I'm trying to refine myself. I went to this high performance academy of personal development with Brendan Bouchard. I don't know if you know who he is. But anyway, he, he took us through this exercise and I had this epiphany. Oh, I know what. Now's the time I should Now's write my time. story. So I got I to gotta, or at least start the process of, of revealing who... That's a big. What had happened to me? That's a big wound so, to open. Yes, and so I um, got a life coach, and she helped me write every day. You know, basically my memories. Right. And at the end of that, it's like, oh, this is you know, how do I turn this into a book? You know, yeah. how do I share this? And so she said, well, get an agent. So I got an agent, <laughs> and it turned out that the agent's wife was the perfect person, and she wanted to write my story. That's and that's Deb Herman. She had been a trial attorney. She had a degree in journalism, specializing in true crime and memoirs. And she'd always been a 60s buff. And about a month before I contacted them, she was recovering from surgery, and Jeff Gwynn's book had just come out, and so she started reading that and just got totally enthralled and, you know, started read that book, and then she read some other books, and she looked at, you know, uh, various interviews and right. documentaries that were out already, and she said, wow, I've been wanting to write this story my whole life. <laughs> and so we got together, and it was a perfect fit, and the, the timing was awesome, and it really helped heal me. It really did. I mean, and I owe a lot to Brendan Bouchard. I owe even more to God for getting me through and pointing me in the right direction and opening all the doors. And we'll leave it. We'll leave it right there at that. Uh, Diane Lake, uh, author of a uh, member of the family, uh, her story of a uh, Charles Manson and life inside his cult. Um, Diane, thank you very much. If, if you have an opportunity to delve into the book and get it, do so. It's available, you know, wherever books are sold. And uh, you can find out a little bit more about her life and what it was like and her breakthrough to come through to the end, which was a successful breakthrough. Thank you very much, Diane. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs>